Galatians 3.15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, this morning we once again want to just acknowledge your holiness and your goodness and your wisdom. As we look back over the events of the last several weeks, it seems as though, uh, I mean, I personally have been surprised by many of these occurrences. I, I would have never guessed that these things might have happened, Lord. Thank you for the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. Uh, thank you for the many thousands of faithful sisters and brothers across our country who have been laboring and will continue to labor to serve vulnerable mothers and children in crisis pregnancy centers, adoption agencies, churches, in informal ways all across our country and even here in our city, Lord. And we do continue to pray for Cocoon Pregnancy Resource Center and Grace House Ministries as they form a partnership that we ask would grow and would become influential in the families and the lives of our city. It's desperately needed. And so, Father, I pray that you would grow this ministry. And, Lord, I ask that you would even begin to work in the hearts and minds of people in this room to go and serve in this way. You, when you make a plan, you make provision for the plan. And so, Father, it's our question to you. What part do you want us to play? What do you want us to do? We ask that you would show us, Father. Lord, we rejoice as well uh, in the, uh, the rescue that you've uh, completed of our county. And, and in spite of the fact that so many acres have been burned, you have spared life. You have protected 
uh, first responders. You've protected homes. And while I'm sure many are going to suffer the outcome of this, uh, and I don't want to make light of that, I just want to thank you for your protection of us during this, uh, during this time. Father, we want to thank you for godly servants who have been deployed from this very church and are ministering today. Lord, I want to thank you for Pete and Cassie McMillan as they serve you in the mountains of New Mexico, in Mayhill, New Mexico. And as Pete preaches this morning in just an hour, I pray that you would anoint him with your spirit and that you would uh, bless him with fruitful ministry and that you would grow that church and that you would grow them into a church that sends church planters and missionaries throughout the world. Lord, as we uh, worship now together, we think of the W family as they minister in Graham today. I pray that you would knit their hearts together with the church where he is preaching and that you would create gospel partnerships between him and many others through this ministry. And I pray that you would bless the church and the pastor through that ministry. Lord, we pray as well for Pastor Guy as he leaves this Friday for Fiji. I ask that you would protect him from the turmoil taking place in the airports of the world and that you would cause him to just have smooth, uh, a smooth uh, journey uh, to that island. And I ask that you would give him favor with the pastors he's going to meet with. And I pray that you would pave the way for future ministry so that many can come to Christ. Lord, I pray for uh, us this morning as we gather and we open up your word that you would help us to see and understand the law. Help us to know how we are to use it, how we are to think of it. What is its relevance to us today? And Father, we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Human beings have come up with some pretty strange laws down through the years. In fact, there are some crazy laws still on the books today. If you go on the internet, you can find them which I did. Uh, for example, did you know that in Mobile, Alabama, it is illegal to own, carry, distribute, sell, or even handle plastic confetti? In the state of California, a frog that dies during a frog jumping competition shall not be eaten and must be destroyed as soon as possible. In the state of Kentucky, all public office holders must swear an oath stating that they have never participated in a duel. Here's an ironic one. In the state of New York, it has been, this is just low-hanging fruit. I'm sorry if you're from New York. In the state of New York, it has been against the law since 1845 to be masked in any manner in public alongside people who are similarly outfitted. I, I'm telling you, I found it on the internet. <laughs> it's true. That's the law. Okay? Last one. In North Carolina, any bingo game operated by a commercial organization shall not last longer than five hours. 
I, I didn't look up any of the laws in Mineral Wells or Palopino County, and no one's made a list of, of strange laws in our neighborhood. I'm sure some of you probably know about the weird ones. You know, human beings have come up with some pretty strange laws. But if you think about it, they're not nearly as bizarre as some of the things we read about in the Old Testament. Uh, under the law of Moses, God's people were prevented from wearing blended fabrics. I would be breaking that law, I'm sure, at, you know, this tie, I don't, I don't know. I'm sure I'm wearing a blended fabric at, at some level. They were prevented from eating bacon or shrimp or bacon-wrapped shrimp. Planting more than one type of seed in a single field or brandishing certain types of facial hair. In fact, and you may have had to deal with this in your conversations with coworkers or relatives, non-Christians often decry the supposed inconsistencies of Bible-believing Christians who believe that God abominates things like same-sex marriage but have no problem ordering a pork chop or a lobster tail at their favorite restaurant. But whether the result is comical, <clears throat> excuse me, frustrating, politically fraught, or as in the case of the Galatian believers, theologically dire, we all struggle to answer this question, what does the law do? What is its purpose? What's its relevance? Is it binding on us today? How is it binding on us today? Are there parts that are binding on us today and other parts that we can sort of cut away? Uh, what, which parts? Or should it be discarded or ignored? Was it just a failed religious experiment that we can thankfully lay aside in favor of the words and works of Jesus Christ? If you're tempted to think of this question as a, a sort of a, a obscure theological debate, read through the book that we've been studying and you'll see that that is far from the case. It's anything but. Misunderstand or misapply the law. And you may very well miss the gospel altogether. The Galatians were in danger of that very thing. They'd started out so well. They heard the message that no one could be justified by the works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. They had seen him lifted up, crucified, and cursed so that they might be forgiven. They had cried out in faith, hands empty, hearts open, to receive the assurance of their justification and the presence of the promised spirit. But through the sinister work of false brothers sneaked in to destroy the freedom that they enjoyed in Christ. These fragile young Christians were tempted to try and sort of ride the fence. To rely on Christ and their good works. To look to the cross and to lean on their obedience to earn their way to God. In other words, this wasn't just an academic obscurity or a political debate or a comical reflection. This was a critical question and in their day. And whether you know it or not, it is just as critical for us today. What does the law do? Paul's going to answer that question by telling us one thing the law can't do and two things the law can do. One thing the law can't do and two things the law can't do. First of all, notice with me from verses 15 through 18, the law can't save. The law can't save. 
remember the context of today's passage. Paul reminded the Galatians of their experience early in chapter 3 when they first heard the gospel and witnessed the apostolic signs and wonders accompanying Paul's message. When they themselves received God's spirit, it wasn't on the basis of the works of the law. It was on the basis of hearing the message of what Christ had done on the cross. It was through God's grace alone, on the basis of Christ's work alone, through faith alone, nothing else. He then, as he moves on in chapter 3, begins to expound to them from the scriptures that his message, his gospel message, is based on the Bible. And he demonstrates that none other, with none other than the example of Abraham himself, who was explicitly declared righteous on the basis of his belief in the promises of God, not on the basis of his own obedience. The obedience came later after he had already been declared righteous. Now it's important that we understand something. Paul was not sitting at his desk one day writing this letter to the Galatians and sort of, you know, puts down the quill or the stylus that he was using and says, you know what, it would be nice if I had a scriptural example that would just bring this point home and prove to everybody that my gospel is the right gospel and they would be convinced and I could you know, rest assured, he wasn't, oh, I, I know, Abraham. No, that's not what happened. No, Paul understood, excuse me, he's operating on an assumption shared by anybody who has a comprehensive understanding of the Hebrew Bible. The story of the Bible is the story of Abraham and his family. It's central to understanding the storyline of the Bible. Genesis 1 through 11 are really an introduction, if you think about it, to God's work through this one man. Everything flows out of the relationship that God has with Abraham. And when God chose him, when he decided to set his loyal love on him, it wasn't because Abraham did anything special. He was just a wandering Aramean, an old man with no kids, no land. Everything he ended up possessing came from God. The only thing, excuse me, the only thing that Abraham did was believe. And when God entered into a covenant relationship with him, Abraham, think about this, from Genesis 15, when God entered into a covenant relationship with him, Abraham was asleep. It wasn't Abraham and God cooperating together, both sharing the liability of the covenant's obligations. Abraham didn't walk the bloody line between the pieces of the animals, obligating himself to keep the covenant. Only one person walked that line. That was God. God obligated himself, not on the basis of his relationship with Abraham, but on the basis of his own truthfulness and his righteous regard for his own word. Abraham was justified by faith, and that justification opened the door for him and for those who would be called his children to receive these wonderful blessings and to avoid the curse. Now, Paul's opponents may well have objected at this point. Sure, Abraham was justified through faith. And we'll even grant that his justification was complete before he was ever circumcised or long before he walked Isaac up to the top of that mountain in a moment of absolute obedience. But a lot has happened since Abraham. God made it possible for us to walk in Abraham's blessing through obedience to the law that was given to Moses. And that's how we show that we're Abraham's children. That's how we receive the blessing that Abraham uh, uh, could expect from God's promise. That's how we stand out as Abraham's offspring. And in verse 15, Paul says essentially, not so fast. 
there are two reasons why those who believe, even the Gentiles who believe, have more of a right to be called the sons of Abraham than even those who are physically descended from him. That is radical. But he, said, he gives us two reasons. First of all, because of the nature of a covenant, even a man-made covenant, once you make that covenant, you cannot annul it. When in the book of Genesis, Isaac makes a covenant with a, a, a local chieftain by the name of Abimelech, they shake hands, and that covenant is binding for the rest of their lives, and that is a covenant between two human beings. How much more a covenant that God makes with himself? You can't change it once it's been ratified. Second of all, he says, because of the recipients of the covenant, Abraham and his offspring. That's not talking about all of Abraham's offspring. This has a specific referent. And, and just notice with me in, verses, uh, uh, in verse 16, <clears throat> This talk about offspring versus offsprings, Paul isn't making a sort of grammatical argument here. He's asking us to think about the storyline of Scripture and to notice and observe the way that the promise was given to Abraham's descendants. Think about this. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. <clears throat> Isaac got the blessing. Ishmael didn't. Isaac had two sons. Esau got passed over. Jacob got the blessing. Jacob had 12 sons, but it would be through one of those sons, through the line of Judah, that God would enter into a special relationship when he anointed David as the king and told him that he was going to have a dynasty that would last forever and ever. And as you read the Old Testament prophets, it becomes clear that it, it isn't David's entire family. No, it's, this, it's not his offsprings who receive the blessing. It's this one man. It's the heir to David's throne. It's King Jesus. It's Christ himself. Christ is the recipient of the blessing of Abraham. Now, the law of Moses can't touch that. It cannot annul. It cannot add to. It cannot change the loyal commitment that God is keeping with the ultimate offspring of Abraham, the ultimate Israel, the ultimate son of David, Jesus himself. This is a covenant between God and Jesus. See, what the Galatians were tempted to do was to admit the specialness of Christ, but to sort of qualify their confidence in him. To say, well, sure, Christ is the son of Abraham, but if I want to be a son of Abraham, I need to become a Jew because the Jews, all the Jews are the offspring of Abraham. And Paul's saying, no, that's not true. Look what he says in verse 18. If the inheritance, that is the promise that God made to give Abraham and his children a good land, the justification that he was able to enjoy, all the promises listed out in the Old Testament that were directed at Abraham and his offspring, if that inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. In other words, you cannot have it both ways. You either can come to God in Christ as a member of the children of Abraham through your union with the one offspring to whom all the promises belong, you can come to God in him where you can stand outside and remain stuck in your sin. Think about it this way. If I go home this afternoon and tell my kids, tomorrow evening we're going to go to Brahms and we're going to get some ice cream. They have every right to hold me to my word. The only condition of that statement is inherent in my own integrity, nothing else. I didn't say if you guys are good, we'll go to Brahms. I didn't say... Uh, maybe, I didn't say if I feel like it, we're, I just said we're going. But then imagine I wake up tomorrow morning and I say, hang on guys. I, when I got up, I walked past your bedroom and it was really messy. And I'm telling you, if you don't clean your room, we're not going to Brahms tonight. 
What did I just do? By making, by making that ice cream dependent on the completion of the chore, I have essentially nullified, I've done away with what I had said before. I altered the promise after the fact. What is, what is altering a promise? It's breaking a promise. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you I've never done that. <laughs> Especially when it comes to my kids and getting them to do their chores. I'm sure I've done things like that without even realizing it. But, uh, and many of you have as well. But listen, folks, God is not like me. And the promise that he made to Abraham and to his offspring was a lot more important than just an ice cream cone. He, he doesn't break his word. His integrity is pristine. His faithfulness is unparalleled. It's flawless. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. And if he had gone back, even in the slightest possible way, and said, by the way, everybody, I, I just want to make sure nobody takes advantage, so I'm going to give you some rules because I know I promised Abraham all this stuff and his offspring and, every, and everything else, but I don't want you to go overboard with it, so I'm going to make you follow the law. If he had done that even a little bit, that would absolutely destroy his trustworthy character. God doesn't change. God doesn't lie. God doesn't go back on his word. He, he doesn't alter his promises. You know what you're revealing? You know what you and I are revealing when we, when we move from a mindset of faith and freedom and gratitude to a sort of self-righteousness and we sort of compare ourselves with other people and smugly in a self-satisfied way rely on the notion that I have met the standard of God? Here's what we're doing. We are calling into question the integrity and the faithfulness of God himself. If the inheritance comes by the law, if, if I receive the blessing of God on the basis of the things that I have done, then it cannot be that I receive those things on the basis of the promise. It's one or the other. It cannot be both. If God requires and if he is so impressed by your obedience and he says, oh, wow, so-and-so has really gotten my attention in their righteousness and their law-keeping, then the promise falls apart. And what I want to tell you is that the reason you can believe that God justifies the ungodly through faith alone in Christ alone is because God doesn't lie. It's because of his character. It's because he doesn't break his word. The law can't save because if it did, that would mean God is a liar and a promise breaker and then we really can't trust anything he does or says and we can't even rely on what this book says and we're doomed. The law can't save. That's number one. That's what the law can't do. Okay, what can the law do? What, is, what does it do? Number two, as he asks in verse 19, why then the law? Here's number two. The law, what does the law do? The law magnifies transgression. The law magnifies transgression. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. The false brothers plaguing the Galatians were using the law for the wrong purpose. They were supposing that they could be justified on the basis of their adherence to the law, but that's not what the law is designed to do. Nowadays, people do the same kind of thing. Uh, have you ever met anybody like this? They read the entire Bible, and specifically the Old Testament, as if it were one gigantic book of Proverbs. You know, like there's all these nuggets of wisdom that tell you how to live your life, and if you follow those things and you, you sort of unlock the mysteries and the secrets 
of the divine law, then you will have a happy life. If you maintain a kosher diet and celebrate the feast days and you dress and act and live like you're under the law, then you'll find that life just sort of works better. But, but listen, that's not why God gave the law. He didn't give you the law because he expected you to earn your way to heaven, and he didn't give you the law so that you would grasp the secrets of a healthy life. It's not a self-help book. Why the law? The law magnifies transgressions, and it does so in three ways. First of all, the law works sort of like a magnifying glass. It informs you of the nature of the transgression. It reveals it to you. I mean, think about the ancient Israelites living before the time of Moses. Yes, they're enslaved in Egypt, and that's, that problem is fronted in the book of Exodus. It's a major obstacle to them, but it's not their only problem. They're also unaware of many of the ways in which they're living at odds with the God of the universe. We're told by uh, Ezekiel, I believe it is, uh, that they were worshiping the same types of false gods as the Egyptians who were oppressing them. Uh, when they finally get rescued, they want to go back. They're in withdrawal. They say, well, take us back to Egypt. We'd rather go back there and have plenty of food to eat instead of dying out here in the wilderness. They would rather go back to slavery than wandering around tra- chasing God. And, and then they're, they're rescued, and they move on. They, they go past the Red Sea. They come to the foot of this huge, imposing mountain, right, Mount Sinai. And it's clear from the arrangement of the Pentateuch itself, Sinai is right in the middle of the narrative. If you count the amount of material before Sinai and the amount after Sinai, it's like it's right in the middle. It's a huge amount of time spent on Sinai. It's a massive obstacle, and it's from Mount Sinai that they're given the law. And God doesn't give it to them directly. He gives it to them through a mediator. He gives it to them through angels, and then the angels give it to Moses, and then Moses gives it to the people. So this, there's this communication that God is way above them and that they're separated from him by their sin, and, and the, the message is that there's this great distance between them and God, and they hear the commands, and then they begin to understand, that's why. That's why I'm separated from God, because he's righteous and I'm not. He's holy and I'm not. Now think about yourself as a sort of microcosm of that multitude of people. At one time, you didn't know any better. You were living how you wanted to live. You had no concern for the fact that your life was displeasing to God. And then you heard the law. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And deep down inside, your mind agreed. These commands are good. It's good to tell the truth. It's good for me to respect somebody else's property. It's good for me to love my neighbor. And then at the same time, almost immediately, I realize I haven't done it. See, the law is like a spotlight shining on our sinful nature. It says you might be living up to your standards. You might be living up to your parents' standards. You might be living up to your spouse's standards. You might be living up to the world's standards, but you are not living up to God's standards. Paul himself tells 
of a similar thought process in Romans chapter 7. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. He hears the law, you shall not covet, and he knows I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I, I'm a transgressor, transgressor of the law. I've coveted many times and in many ways. This is what the law does. It magnifies sin by informing us that we have sinned. It also magnifies sin by inflaming sin, inflaming our our sin nature. There's something about a prohibition that works like a magnet toward whatever is being prohibited. Have you found that to be true? Uh, In our previous church, I used to be the children's church director or leader or whatever. And uh, I learned this very principle watching these five-year-olds. Uh, And if you've ever had a five-year-old, you probably have learned this too. Uh, But I remember one little boy, the the pastor's son, his youngest son. Blonde hair, blue eyes, a grin that just says, I'm going to get in trouble today. It's going to be worth it. Usually I know that if you want to have a good day in children's church, you sort of have to have a program for the kids. You have to almost trick them into behaving and doing what you want them to do. Like, hey, this is more fun. It's more fun to do what I'm asking you to do than to be a little rebel. Well, one particular Sunday, I, don't ha- I didn't have my wits about me, and I-, I asked the kids to sit down. And as per usual, this little boy, uh, I'm not going to tell you his name, uh, he ignored me, and instead of doing what I would normally do and what, what I would recommend uh, and, and just trying to redirect or something like that, like we don't need to make everything into a big discipline issue, I, I didn't do that. I kind of called him out. I said, young man, I said sit down. He just looked at me without blinking, standing there, staring at me. I felt like I was at the OK Corral. I said again, you sit down or I'm going to call your father. He didn't sit down. That little boy, usually so fun to be around, easy to like, he'd been given a commandment. And the commandment inflamed that rebellious streak hidden in his heart. He wasn't going to budge. And so realizing that I couldn't call the pastor in the middle of his sermon, uh, I ignored him and continued on to the next thing, and no one really cared. I did have to tell his mother afterwards, but I did ask her to show mercy because I had sort of singled him out, you know, for this duel. But we all get that impulse. The law comes, and all of a sudden, I find myself wanting to break it. This is what the law does. It informs us of our transgression. It inflames our sinful nature. And then there's a third thing that it does. The law imprisons us in our sin. The law has a very important purpose, but we have to understand what that is. It doesn't show us the way of salvation. It shows us our sin. You say, well, why would I want that? I would rather not think about that. I like my life. I just do what I want to do. Nobody tells me what to do with my money. Nobody tells me what to do with my time. Nobody tells me what to do with my body. I do whatever I want. I'm totally free. No, the law shows you that you're not. You're not free if you're free. Try telling your body to do what God wants it to do. See what happens. Try just for a day to really love your neighbor, to avoid coveting. 
you'll see you're not free at all. You are in prison to that sin. Uh, it's like a dog lying in a yard, free to lie there, free to walk over and drink some water, free to walk over here and chew on a bone, free to walk back there and go into the doghouse until the one thing that he wants to do lies 10 feet beyond the length of the chain that's tied around his neck. You see, if you're imprisoned to sin, it's better to know about it. And that's what the law does. It shows us just how stuck we are. It's like a mirror. Uh, some people have mirrors so that they can admire themselves and how wonderful and beautiful they are. But the real purpose of a mirror is to show you what's wrong so that you can fix it. Uh, I wish I didn't have those blemishes. I wish I didn't have a hair out of place, but I'd rather know about it so I can fix it. We don't want the law like we don't want to go to the doctor, even though deep down inside we know there's something wrong. But we go, and we sit, and we listen, and we expect her to tell us everything because knowing the truth may save our lives. We look at our kids' report cards, and we check their text messages, and we see the things that they've been doing on their phones, not because it's fun, not because it's enjoyable, but because we need to know. And what I'm saying, Christian, is that our friends and our neighbors and our children, they need to know what's wrong, so they need to know the law. There's a very common way of speaking about Jesus and the gospel in this day and age in our culture that leaves the law aside. Like, come to Jesus, it'll be great. Uh, or if you're anxious, if you're depressed, if you've had a bad breakup... If you're lonely, Jesus knows about it. Jesus will help you. He'll help you feel better. And I know you want to feel better, and there's nothing wrong with that per se. But that is not your biggest problem. I know you don't want to be lonely, but that is not your biggest problem. I, I know you want to feel like you can forgive yourself, but even that is not your greatest need. What you need to know is that you are at odds with your creator, and the law shows you that. When we do speak of God's law, often it's in the most flippant of ways, and it, and it obscures the, the nature of, of what's really going on. Like, have you ever lied even one time? Have you ever said, no, I don't feel well, when really you just wanted to stay home and watch TV and not go to the picnic? Well, then you broke the law. And we're coming away thinking, well, okay, God is kind of petty. But listen, <laughs> when we really know the law, we understand we didn't just make a mistake. We didn't just make a little misstep. The law is clear and good and right. Every single thing that God has commanded us to do, it's well within our reach. He didn't ask us to do anything superhuman, to fly or stand on our head and spit wooden nickels or anything like that. But we don't do what he commands us to do because our desires, our hearts are bent out of shape and we've refused over and over again to do what he commands. You need to know that. You need to know that you're a lawbreaker, and when you stand before the judge, you are not going to be worried about whether you crossed everything off of your bucket list. You are not going to be worried about whether you could forgive yourself. You are going to have one priority. Will this God, the God, the judge of all the earth, will he declare me righteous? 
And when you really look at the, what the commands are that God has given in his law, and you compare that to the way that you've been living, the answer is very clear. No way. Not on the basis of the way that I've been living. Parents, teach your kids the law. Teach them the commands of God. Teach them that when they disobey you, they are sinning against God Almighty. Oh, well, I'll just redirect you over here. No, it's your responsibility, Mom and Dad, to tell them, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. And when you disobey me, you're disobeying the, the person who made you. You say, okay, well, what good is that even going to do? <laughs> but notice number three. First of all, the law can't save. The law does magnify sin. That's number two. But in the third place, notice this. The law prepares us for Christ. The law prepares us for Christ. Look at verse 23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now that word... Guardian is a very important word, and I know not everybody is looking at the same translation of the Bible that I have in front of me. Uh, some translations use guardian. You might see custodian. You might see disciplinarian. You might see tutor. You might see schoolmaster. What is Paul trying to say here? Well, this is a very specific cultural feature of the ancient world. A guardian is actually a slave or a servant of a wealthy family tasked with overseeing the character development of a child who will one day inherit the title and position of his father. Guardians were responsible for discipline. They would take their master's son to and from school. Uh, when mentioned in ancient literature, these people, these guardians, were typically regarded as harsh, cruel. But when the time came for the young man to strike out on his own, the guardian's role was over. This is a temporary preparatory office that would eventually become obsolete in the lives of the people it was designed to serve. And this is how Paul envisions the law of Moses. The law is not contrary to the promise. It's not that the law contradicts the promise of God. It's not a contradiction to grace. It complements the promise of God's grace because it prepares God's people for the one who would come and provide and furnish that grace. The law disciplines the sinner. It convicts him of transgression and disobedience and rebellion until the time of maturity. In other words, the law was particularly active in the centuries leading up to the time of Christ. And so much of what we read in the law is designed exclusively to prepare us for the coming of Jesus Christ. If you read the Gospel of John, for example, or the book of Hebrews, you'll see all of that stuff points to Jesus. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Uh, sent into the world to take away our sins by the shedding of his blood. Jesus is the lamp in the temple, bringing God's light to the world as celebrated in the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, he is the living water. He is everything. And even the demands of the covenant, the prohibitions and the prescriptions, all have their culmination in Christ. So that when Christ comes, those types, they give way to the antitype. Those Patterns, they give way to the original. The likeness gives way to the genuine article. The fullness of time has come and the guardian is no longer needed. Now, that's not to say, by the way, that when the son reaches maturity that he abandons all the values of his family, right? No, what does he do? He internalizes those values. And Paul's going to talk about that later in Galatians 5 and 6. 
But this is why you need the law, because you need to be disabused of the illusion that you might ever be justified on the basis of your goodness. This is why we teach our kids the commands of God, because just like everyone else, they are going to bend over backwards to justify themselves. And it's not until they're brought face-to-face with the cold, hard reality that they are lawbreakers that they will truly understand their need for Jesus. So if you love your kids, lead them to the law, and then lead them past the law to the one who takes the demands and the condemnations away. The law itself cannot give life, it cannot save, it cannot rescue. The law can only condemn, it can only diagnose the cancer eating away at our souls. But if I don't have that diagnosis, if I don't have that, if I don't know about that condemnation, then how am I going to know that I need Christ? You know, it seems to me that as we look at this passage, there are three types of people in this room, listen to my voice. Uh, You might call them the lawless, the legalist, and the loved. Uh, A lawless person is someone who wants to take the law and cast it aside and ignore it. A legalist is somebody who imagines that they can earn God's favor by keeping the law. And it seems to me that both of these types of individuals, both the lawless person and the legalist, suffer from the same two problems, the same two tendencies. The lawless person, they both have a tendency to make the law Less than it is. Have you thought about this? The lawless person imagines that he can ignore the commandment, but it's God's word and it can't be ignored. The legalist imagines that he can fulfill its demands, that it's easier to do than it actually is. Both of them limit the law of God. Both of them see the law as an evil thing. The lawless person believes that the law is a mistake, a problem to be avoided and ignored. The legalist imagines that through the law, God is out to get him and that the only way to escape is by dodging the various demands that the law brings down. In both cases, they see the law itself as evil. And folks, what I'm saying is let's not be the lawless person or the legalist. Let's recognize that even through the law, God is making known to us his love. He loves us too much to let us think that we're okay when we're not okay. So he gives us a law that diagnoses our condition and sends us to the only remedy there is. The law is good, not because it saves us, not because we can earn the good life by keeping its demands, but because the law removes the lie that we can save ourselves. The law prepares us for the Lord Jesus Christ. It prepares us for faith. As Paul says, when faith has come, We're no longer under a guardian. What's faith? Faith is saying, there's only one person who can save me, and I believe you will. Faith is saying, on my own, I stand condemned. Christ, I'll die if you don't rescue me. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on Galatians, put it this way, faith is a needy cry for God, while works try to impress God. Faith is a hand reaching out for help, while works insist that no help is needed. Faith trusts that God alone can accomplish salvation, while works smuggle in human effort and cooperation. Thanks be to God that he gives us a law to show us the folly of pride and self-reliance and the hope that we have in Christ alone by faith. Ralph Erskine, the 18th century Scottish pastor, put it this way, a rigid matter 
was the law. Demanding bricks, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. See, we need the law, but we need to fit it into its proper place in the plan of God in saving the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't ignore the law. Don't imagine that you can keep it and earn God's favor and approval. Let it do what it was put in place to do. Let it lead you broken and burdened to the foot of the cross so that you can lay your burden down and you can nail that sentence of death to that execution stake for good. Move past the law and find full forgiveness as a child of God and a son of Abraham and an heir to the promised blessing shown in the Spirit's work in our lives today. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to respond to the Word of God? Father, uh, thank you for giving us the law. It's a good, good thing. Without it, we would have no idea just how needy we are. Thank you for convicting us of sin and showing us that in and of ourselves, we have no good with which to come before you. We have no good deeds in which to boast. The only one who has any right to glory is you. Father, I pray that you would continue as we preach through this book and get back to the basics and remember that Our justification is by your grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone. Pray that you would expose the ways that we say, no, the law is not good. I pray that you would expose the ways that we try to earn your favor through our performance. I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to respond in the desperation of faith. And I pray that you would do it now in the hearts of all who hear. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.